Look to Jonah chapter 3, and we find ourselves studying this book of Jonah about a fugitive missionary who runs from God because he does not like the word of the Lord that was brought to him. God says, I want you to go to this place called Nineveh. Jonah says, and I, I add this because I kept saying, no way, Jose. Someone said that I needed to change it and make it no way, Yahweh. And uh, some of you got that. It was... I have laughter here, but you guys are still early in the morning. But he runs from God and heads the opposite direction uh, from Nineveh. And God brings a, a, a whole set of circumstances into his life that begin to redirect him. And the biggest one is, is that he's thrown over the ship that he is on, uh, trying to flee from God. And God summons a great fish to swallow him up. And for three days and three nights, he sits in the belly of this great fish. Now, as a result of that, he has a spiritual awakening that takes place. He cries out to God with a prayer of desperation, and he says, God, save me. He doesn't want to die. He wants to uh, live life again, and he gives some vows in this prayer that are found in chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2, it says that this great fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. Starting in chapter 3, where we're going to find ourselves today, we see Jonah obeying the word of the Lord and then heading to Nineveh. So let's look at our text this morning. If you would stand as we read Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is what our text says this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Now Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was an important city. A visit required three days. On that first day, Jonah started into the city, and he proclaimed, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And the verse 5 finishes our text by saying, The Ninevites believed God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, today we see... Uh, people are given a message, and Lord, they believe. Lord, this is the message that uh, is very similar to the message that we have today. It's a message that to many seems like doom and gloom. Judgment is coming. But Lord, that resonates in our hearts as well. For anyone who uh, does not follow you, Lord, the scriptures are clear that judgment is coming and that it won't be very pretty. Father, we know that you have uh, told us that those who do not bow the knee to Jesus, those who do not give their lives to your Son and, and end their life, uh, or be at the end of their life, Lord, uh, will one day spend eternity uh, in a place called hell. These are grievous things to the heart of your people. And Lord, we know that uh, a good news has come. Lord, even amidst this uh, gloom and doom message that Jonah brings to a sinful people, we're going to learn today that there is a grace that is found within the message. Lord, that grace that, uh, that you've allowed to uh, be seen, not just uh, through your son Jesus Christ, but through the words of the prophet. Lord, even the opportunity for us to hear a message a second time is grace uh, unto itself. So Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds as we learned last week, that you would ignite our heart for our own Nineveh, that we would not be the reluctant missionaries as Jonah was in chapter 1, but that we would be excited and ready to take on the task, as difficult as it may be, 
to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that while judgment is coming, there is an answer to that judgment. And his name is Jesus Christ. So Lord, be with me today uh, in this first service. Lord, I pray a special blessing on our second service as well. That uh, those who do not know you uh, will turn and just like the Ninevites, believe and receive eternal life. We love you and we thank you and give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jonah is given the impossible task of heading into a city full of sinners and to proclaim a message that in the essence says it is time to change. Now we know that this eight-word sermon that Jonah takes into the city of Nineveh is a message that speaks to the doom and gloom that is coming to the people of Nineveh. Think about for a moment, if you were to walk into the city of Aurora and to tell everybody that you come in contact with, that we just get on Galena Boulevard and we just start heading through the city of Aurora and we tell everybody 40 days and Aurora will be overturned. You got a problem coming, Aurora. There's an issue coming. And in 40 days, you're going to find out what it's all about. What do you think the response might be? I'm sure for many of us there, we would probably experience a, a set of laughter. People would question uh, our thinking, our, 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 our mental health. They would wonder, uh, you know, what kind of cult we have found ourselves in. Some would be angry. How dare you say that this great city of Nineveh would be overturned? We're one of the greatest nations. We're one of the greatest people in all of the Middle East. How can you tell us that we're going to be overturned? This is nonsense. And yet that's what Jonah does. And the response is something that we would never see before. Because when we look at this, he comes out and he says something has to change. Now it's not ex uh, explicit in the text. But in the Hebrew, many scholars believe that there was an opportunity for a change. You know, we live in a world that, that desires change. I don't know about the Ninevites, but I wonder if, if the Ninevites uh, had a spirit of change in them. Not a spiritual change, but maybe a change uh, for something better. You know, this last year, they uh, every year they uh, do a poll of the name, or not the names, I'm sorry, but the words that change um, society. And for the first time, number one this year was that word change. Now, I, we can talk about the politics of it and all that. But it seems that we as a nation came to a place that we desired change. Now, why would we desire change? I mean, things are going pretty well. You know, we, we have everything that we need. Why would we as a people desire change? Well, the whole reason for a desire of change is a spirit of discontent. We're unhappy with where the things are at in our lives. But it doesn't just happen as a nation. It does, change isn't just something that America holds to. But change can happen for us as individuals. We are constantly desiring to see change in our lives. This next Saturday, uh, my class will celebrate their 15th uh, high school reunion. I know I age myself to some, and I show myself to be a young spring chicken to others. But 15 years, I ran into a, a classmate. I haven't seen many of my classmates, even though I live in the town that the school I attended was in. And I ran into an individual uh, from my class. 
And we were shopping and ran into each other in one of the aisles. And, and I said, are you going to the reunion? And her face just dropped. And she says, no way. And I says, why not? She says, when the invitation came out almost a year ago, I vowed that I was going to do a couple things. She said, I needed to uh, maybe lose some weight. I, I needed to get some, a new hairdo and all that. And she says, I made this decision that I was going to change, and I haven't done any of it. And I'm too ashamed to go back to my class and show them that I'm the same old person that I was there. And that's usually kind of the response we get when it comes to class reunions. We want to show people that there's been some change. We even want to make sure that that change is good change. Now, you know me, I'm just going to show up, old Tim, just like normal. Here I am, not much to look at, but he tells some good jokes. And yet that's the sense that we get in our world. Change. We want to change. We want to see it. In fact, uh, we want to change things like our clothing. We want to change things like our hair. We want to change our cars. We want to change our homes. The, di- the desire is, is we do not like the status quo. In fact, uh, if we don't like it, our world tells us that all you have to do with your life is, is start, start thinking a different way. Uh, one of uh, the rock groups named Sister Hazel says this, If you want to be someone else, if you're tired of fighting battles with yourself, If you're wanting to do something else, just change your mind. See, what the world is telling us is is that if you want to experience change, then all you have to do is is change your thinking, maybe change some of your externals. I mean, how many uh, extreme makeover shows do we have on cable television that talk about change? We uh, hunger for this thing. And yet, what Jonah finds himself coming to a city... And what God finds with us as a people is, amidst all the change that we desire in the physical realm, in the external things, when it comes to the spiritual, we don't want to change. Nineveh was a city full of wickedness. It didn't want to change. It wanted to be who it was. It was happy where things were at. And for us as people, many times we as people don't want to change spiritually. And so God has to come in and God has to bring people into our lives and he has to bring a message that speaks of change. And that's what Jonah does this morning. But why is it that we need change spiritually? What is it that created uh, such a need for change in the life of Nineveh? Well, before we get to answering that question, I want to share some things with you about what spiritual change is not. Because when we look at the nation of Assyria... And the city of Nineveh, we see at the end of this book a great revival that takes place. And we talk about revival in our churches. In fact, this is the greatest revival to ever take place in the biblical narrative. There's no other place where so many people repent of their sins and turn to God. And Jonah is a part of it. But what are the things when we use the word revival, and we use it a lot in churches, what are things that aren't considered change or revival? And so when we look at this example of Nineveh, we need to understand that there's some things that we do that we say are revival and spiritual change, but they're not. The first one, write these down. Uh, it's somewhere in your outline. The first thing that we see is that a series of revival or evangelistic meetings are not revival. Just because we put together a program where we're going to uh, reach out to people 
what we're going to talk about revival doesn't produce uh, what God would articulate as revival. The second thing is, is that an emotional outburst of spiritual fervor is not revival. You come out after a, a, a sermon or a, a certain Bible study or a, a concert or a church experience and you're all excited and you're, you're ready to serve the Lord and you're, you're fired up. That doesn't mean per se that you're experiencing revival. Another one is fads of programmatic experiences with God. If you ever look at a, um, a bookstore and what's on its shelves or on a... Um, Christian catalog of, of books and stuff, you will see time and time again, seven steps to revival, four keys to spiritual change. And just because it gives you these steps, this program of how to experience change and revival in your life, doesn't mean that you're a part of revival or change. Even the, the final one is a, a feeling of regret over your sin or circumstances. That's not revival. Just because you feel sorry or you're, you're disappointed at where your life is at and you come to a place and say, I don't like this, just even the desire to say, I don't like where I'm at and I would like a change isn't revival in and of itself. Because at that decision that you make that you say, I desire change or I desire something different doesn't mean you desire God. There's a lot of people who, who are looking for God, but they're looking for God for all the wrong reasons. They're pursuing Him because they want to change a certain external part of their life, not a change of the heart. And so Jonah goes into a nation, he goes to a city, and he articulates the need for change. But he explains to them why they need to change. He tells them what happens if they won't change. And then we see through that story, through that text, what is given by God for, for us to experience that change. So let's look at the first thing this morning in your outlines. If we are to change, we need to understand why. And the first reason that we need to look at is that God demands that we change because of our sin. Now, what is it about us that God wants to change? Isn't He our Creator? Isn't He the one that made us? Why would He want to change us? If he put us together the right way and said, yeah, I built man and woman and, and they're set and he even said that it's very good after he created them, why would he want us to change all of a sudden? Well, the reason why is because of our sin. In the garden, our, spirit, our uh, physical parents, Adam and Eve, found themselves pursuing other things instead of God. And because of that, Instead of following God, they fell to sin. And as a result of that, there was an issue between God and man. There was hostility that was there as a result. And what would happen is, is Adam and Eve would hear God walking in the garden after they sinned. And they go running. They flee from God. And what they do is they recognize for the first time that they're naked and they're shameful of their nakedness. And so what do they do? They try to change the external. They go and they put fig leaves to cover themselves over their bodies. Why? Because they think an external change, covering something, will make the change that is necessary. And yet it doesn't. And yet the same thing that Adam and Eve did thousands of years ago is the same thing we do today. Instead of changing the inside, we change the outside. We make the outside look real good while the inside's falling apart. 
while the inside is dying and, and is rotten to the core. Jesus would speak about this when he spoke to the Pharisees. He says, you look great on the outside, but you're a bunch of dead men bone, dead man's bones on the end. You're whitewashed tombs. We think that change comes to the external. But the problem is, is we can't change this issue of sin through the external things. Well, what causes this sin? The first thing we see in our story is that it involves wandering from God. As we look at the story of Jonah, before we even get to the Ninevites, we have to understand that wandering from God is our problem when it comes to sin. Jonah hears a message from God. And even though Jonah is a prophet, he shows us our tendency to run away from God and to wander from Him. And so he hears the message of, of the Lord. He knows what God has called him to. And before he uh, uh, can say yes, something in him says, no, I don't want to do that. Now we go back, and that's again the example of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are doing fine, enjoying all the benefits and love that God has to give until God gives a command that they don't like. And as a result of that, they wander away from the truth of God and they pursue uh, the fruit that was forbidden. And this is what Jonah does. Jonah finds himself saying, you know what, I don't like what you've told me, God. I don't like your command, so I'm going to go do my own thing. And he wanders away from God. Well, we do the same thing. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have wandered away, each of us our own, to our own ways. We wander. One of the great hymns says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, this wandering doesn't just involve people that have never been saved. Jonah was a prophet of God. We as believers still struggle with wandering away from God. Temptation comes. We find ourselves pursuing those things instead of God. And as a result of that, we find ourselves in sin. And God says something needs to change. God uses a whale. Uh, God uses a storm. God uses circumstances to change the life of Jonah. And we talked about this in chapter 1. He'll do that with us as well. Now the second thing we see about sin is that it involves living lives of wickedness. As if Jonah's wandering away wasn't enough to write about, the author tells us about the city. Now last week we talked about the city of Nineveh and the wickedness and the uh, viciousness of their uh, lives and how they lived with one another. They were a wicked people. In fact, in four chapters, there are four references that the author makes about the wickedness of Nineveh. Notice in chapter 1, it tells us this. Go to the great city, in verse 2, of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. That's God talking. He says, their sin has, has gotten right in front of me. I can't get beyond it. And then look at uh, verse uh, or chapter 3. Uh, verse 6 and 7. Here's what, uh, I'm sorry, not verse 6, 7. Verse, uh, verse uh, let's see here. Verse 8. This is the king of Nineveh talking to his people. He says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. They're, they're giving their lives over to God. And he says, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. In verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. Four references to God speaking to the wickedness of a people. 
Now, was wickedness only found in the city of Nineveh? Was that just the bad uh, crop of people that found themselves as sinners? No. The Bible says not only have we all wandered away from God, but we all live lives of wickedness. Now, you say, Tim, I'm not that wicked. That's the great theme of Jonah. Jonah looks at Nineveh and he says, there's a group of sinners. They're wicked. Why would God show his grace to that kind of people? And what God is reminding Jonah about is Jonah himself is wicked. And that if God can show grace to the wicked people of Nineveh, and that God could even judge that nation as well, based on his grace and his mercy and compassion, then what the people of Israel would need to understand is even though they look good, and think they're better than the Ninevites, they too are sinners. And so we see that that even though we think that we're better than others, we ourselves are wicked. The Bible tells us as, uh, as humanity that even our righteous deeds that we do are but filthy rags before God. They're wicked. There's nothing we can do. The Bible says there's none that are righteous, not even one. So the reason why God wants change is because we are a wicked and a wandering people. And as we look at Nineveh, we see a picture of ourselves. As we look at even the reluctant prophet Jonah, we see ourselves. And as a result of that, God is crying out to us and he's saying, it is time for a change. But but why? why? Why would we have to change? Because point number two tells us, unless we change... Unless we change, we face a sentence of death. We face a death sentence. Notice what Jonah chapter 3 verse 4 says. On the first day, this tells us that he immediately gets into the city and he immediately obeys God. There's no waiting around. He gets there and on the first day, he starts into the city and he starts proclaiming. Now there's differing understanding of what it means when it comes to... Um, Proclaimed. Is it just a simple generic word? Some uh, say because of uh, some of the Hebrew uh, construction there that literally Jonah let go. And the idea here is that with reckless abandonment, he entered into the city and some believe that it was just because he, he was done running away from God and he figured, you know what, I'm just going to let him have it. And then I'll let God do whatever he's going to do as a result of it. Others believe that he's really passionate about this, that there has been a a serious change in heart, and that he proclaims with great passion uh, what is to take place. There's no question that in this proclamation, it would have had to have been something great. Because if he was going to change a nation that was in the hundreds of thousands of people, then he would have to garner their attention. What would be a part of his message... This doom and gloom message that we're going to look at, what would cause the people to listen? I mean, have you ever been to O'Hare Airport and, and seen a guy standing up uh, on a soapbox, if you will, and crying out hell, fire, and brimstone to all those around? you got to create a scene, if you will, to garner some attention. There's no question that Nineveh, as is said, it was a great city. It was a bustling city. It was a metropolis. And to have one guy walk into the city and to change it as Jonah did, something had to be a part of his proclamation. Now some say that as a result of being swallowed by a fish, 
That because of, and not to get gross this early in the morning, but because of all the gastric acids and juices that would be found in an organism like a fish would create such a disfigurement uh, to the body and the face of Jonah that he would have been a sight to see. Some say he would have had uh, a pale complexion, far more pale than, than the most Caucasian individual. He would have lost parts of his hair and uh, even might have had even acidic burn marks on his face. Well, that might have garnered it. We don't know. We don't know what garners it, but we know that the message arrests the heart of the people. And this is why. And then we see in the second point, unless we change, we face a death sentence. Notice what he says. He says, uh, on the first day, Jonah started into the city. And here's what he proclaims. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. What a statement. What he's saying is, is all right. God's bringing the judgment and he's bringing the hammer and it's going to come down on you in your city. There's judgment coming. That would have rested the hearts of the people. Now you could say, well, God, isn't God a nice God? Why, why would he say that? No one has up to this point ever talked with the Ninevites before. We don't know of any scripture that says that there was a prophet that went before. They didn't know any better. Well, now they did. Jonah says God's coming and God's bringing judgment. And within that statement, there is this idea of change. But even before we can get there, we need to understand what is he saying? He's saying that if there is not change, then there's a problem. And the problem is, is you're going to be overturned. Well, we need to look at what this word overturned means. First of all, it can mean literally destroyed. In fact, this word is used, this Hebrew word is used in Genesis when it talks about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, there's probably uh, little information that the Ninevites would have understood about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we don't know how far that would have gotten through uh, the telling of that incredible event. But we do know that this word literally means to be destroyed. And so what it could be used is, is here Jonah is saying, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Now, think about that. That's a death sentence. That's a sentence that tells people of hopelessness. That there is change coming, but it's all bad. It's, it's not positive. Well, we need to understand a couple things about this. That first of all, this death sentence, if you will, was deserved. It was deserved. These people were a people of great wickedness. And God said he was tired of that wickedness being up in his face. I told you last week the construction of the Hebrew phrase there, their wickedness has come up before me, literally means it was in my face. I couldn't get it out of my sight. And so he got tired of it and he says, you know what? I'm tired of looking at this sin and I'm going to deal with it once and for all. And that's true for us as well. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wage of sin is death. And we need to recognize that. We need to understand that, that there's going to be a time and a place where God's grace will be brought to its end and God will say, enough is enough. We're going to deal with this. And he has. We've talked about where God, in specific areas, at times when individuals sinned, that it brought forth death. Now we know back, of course, in the Garden of Eden that there was not physical death that took place right away, but we know there was spiritual death. And so here the Ninevites find themselves at, 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 uh, within a place of hostility uh, with God. 
They're at war with God because of their wickedness. And God says something has to change. And God does that in our own lives where he begins to articulate to us through different experiences and times and he says, it's time to change. You ain't going to live like you lived for this whole life up to now. He does that with Saul on the road to Damascus. He says, enough is enough. I'm going to go meet with him and I'm going to go look at him and I'm going to change his life. And so here we see that we deserve this death sentence. We deserve it, but God gives an opportunity. God allows for a change to take place. So we've got to the bad news. God's going to destroy us. There's no clause in there that says if. There's nothing that says if you do this. Eight words that end with Nineveh being overturned. It's five words in the Hebrew. There's some preaching that you guys would like, I know. If I was to get up and and preach a five, uh, not a five-minute sermon, but a five-word sermon, it'd be a good day at church. There was a story of a man uh, at Moody Bible Institute who was speaking uh, to the chapel group. And they were looking forward uh, to him uh, to preach. They had talked about him coming in. He was a great expositor of the word. And he walked into chapel. And there was a hushed silence over the crowd. And they knew he was going to talk about evangelism. And they were ready to hear. The kids had all their notebooks open, pens ready. They wanted to hear from this master teacher. And he walks up and he's got his Bible and, a, and it looked like a, just a boatload of notes. And he gets up to the pulpit and he looks at the people. And for a minute he just stares out looking at them as if to build the anticipation. And he says this, just do it and let's pray. Sometimes we don't need a long oratory of words. Sometimes we don't need to be hit over the head again and again with things. God, all he did with Saul was say Saul's name. That's all. All Jonah had to say was five words in the Hebrew that would articulate God's anger and frustration and uh, struggle with the issue of Nineveh's sin. That's all it took. Just a couple words. But we see something that comes out of it. This, there's this good news that comes, and, and it involves this sentence that determines our destiny. Now, this is important. You're not going to see it in your English, but in the Greek, I'm sorry, Greek, the Hebrew word overturned is the word hapak. So in your Bibles, if you want to write down or in your outline, the word hapak, it's, the transliteration is H-A-P-A, it would be K, would be the best way to uh, pronounce that, hapak. And this word had two different uses in the Hebrew language. The first one, as I've already told you, was that something would be destroyed. Nineveh uh, was a city that experienced this word hapak, this, this idea of being destroyed, but it also meant something else. And this word, this is why it's important because I believe in the earlier um, editions of the NIV, if you have, I believe it's a 1978 edition of the NIV, then you would see the word that Nineveh will be destroyed. And in 1984, the NIV translators went back and I believe and rightfully changed the translation because it was only one-dimensional to a two-dimensional word. And they took the word destroyed and they said, yes, that word hapak means destroyed, but really what it means is that there's an overthrowing. 
And so they've changed the word to overthrown. Now, why would they do something like that years after their first edition change it? Because in the Hebrew word, it also can mean a change of heart. And so here what God is articulating through Jonah is that not only is there a possibility that what this word and this message meant was destruction, it also meant there's a time for a change of heart. See, there's grace even in the greatest message of judgment There is grace found with God. What Jonah is saying is, is he's saying Nineveh is going to be overturned. It's going to be overthrown. What does that mean? It means that there is a possibility that in 40 days, the city will not be the city that it was 40 days ago. The idea here is that there could be a change of heart. There could be a turning from the way they used to live to being the way that they will live now in the future. And so here's this grace that God gives. Amidst a death sentence, there's always with God an opportunity for grace. And that's what Jonah articulates. He articulates this idea that there is grace when a right choice is made. You see, because of their sin, yes, there was change coming. When we look at this text, we see that there is change coming. If they don't repent, 40 days will go by, and like Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh would be destroyed. But after 40 days, if they had repented, if they had followed God, if they had done all that they could to show their change of heart, then God would spare them, but the city still would be changed. So change was coming. But what change were they going to pursue? The text tells us that they obeyed, they believed. And yet this is a choice that we recognize as well as believers. This is something that we articulate. Because when we share the gospel, what I'll be sharing in in the next hour will be to a group of people a message of doom and gloom. We call that hellfire and brimstone. I call it the gospel. The Bible says that because of our sin, we will face death. And that death is not just a physical death, which we will all experience, but a spiritual death, a separation from God, with its culmination being at a place and time called hell and eternity. And that's going to rattle the hearts of people. But in that message of doom and gloom, there's grace. And the grace is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we face an inevitable death sentence, There's a way out. That's the good news. The good news is that we have a lot of bad news in our life. The good news is that there's an opportunity to turn from sin and to follow God. And so we see that it involves our destiny. Well, what does that mean? Well, Hebrews 9.27 tells us that man, it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Now, a little different in the story of Nineveh, Nineveh was given a period of time. Not a whole life, but 40 days, 40 days to change. And when we go out, just as Jonah did, our word is to articulate that our destiny is impacted by the choice that we make. Either we turn to God or we continue to live in sin and we will be brought to a place of destruction. The story of Nineveh is the story of the gospel. The story of Nineveh is the plight of unbelievers who look before a holy God and see that God is serious about sin. And so when we look at this story, we see us before we met Christ on our way to hell, 
But the gospel is a gospel of change. When we talk about the idea of repentance, we talk about a change of heart, a change in direction of how we live. But how are we to do it? The Bible says we can't do it on our own. So how do we accomplish it? The final point that I have this morning is that change is only possible through a divinely provided solution. What is God's answer to this issue of change? How were the Ninevites to change? Well, God gives them solution to their greatest problem. And it involves some things. First of all, it involves sending a person. God saw Nineveh and its sin. God saw their wickedness. And God could have exhibited his judgment and his wrath and destroyed Nineveh right then and there. But he doesn't. He sends a person. And that person is the man Jonah, this prophet the son of Amittai, chapter 1 says, who is going to go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim against it. And he's going to tell them, hey, you don't know about this right now, but you need to hear about it, and God has sent me to tell you about it. Judgment is coming. God is serious about it, so turn from your sin, because if you don't, then you'll be destroyed, you'll be overturned. Second thing that it involves is a set period of time. God gave him 40 days. In and of itself, that is a grace. God saw Nineveh's wickedness, and he should have destroyed him right then and there. God should have destroyed Adam and Eve right in the garden. God should have destroyed us at the moment we were conceived in our mother's womb because we there were sinful. And yet God doesn't. Now God gives Nineveh 40 days, but God gives us a lifetime. Some may be as short as 40 days. Others may be 40 years. Still others may be as many as 100 or more. God gives us a set period of time to change. So he sends people into our lives to tell us about the gospel. And we are told that the moment our heart stops beating, the moment our brain stops sending the signals to our body to live, the moment that stops is the moment judgment comes. And that's when it's too late. There's a specific proclamation. And the proclamation is a message that elicits some sort of action. The scholars and commentaries articulate that within this message, there is a call to action. When, Je when uh, Jonah goes into the city and articulates to the people that they're going to be overturned in 40 days, the people change. The people respond. Now, they could have responded in one of two ways. We know that, of course, they believed and they respond in the affirmative, but they could have responded in the negative. Isn't that true of the gospel as well? That when we go to a people and we articulate something to them, the gospel must elicit a response. The gospel isn't a message that someone can just say, you know, it doesn't make any, any difference to me, I, whatever. They're either going to say yes to the gospel or they're going to say no. There's no middle ground. And in this message to the Ninevites, there was no middle ground. You either can continue to rebel against God and say, Jonah, you don't know what you're talking about. Get your garbage and this message of doom and gloom out of here. We're fine. We don't need you. Get lost. Or they could do as they did, and that is get on their knees and cry out to God. The gospel, in every instance, elicits a response. It calls for action. And so this proclamation that is given is a proclamation for change itself. 
And then it involves a spiritual profession. The text tells us, and we'll get into this next week more in detail, but it says they believed. They took God on his word. Now notice in the text, they don't know at this point if anything they do is going to change things. Notice in uh, verse 7, the news reaches the king in verse 6. He hears about this message. He takes off his robes. He covers himself with sackcloth and ashes. The idea of just utter uh, repentance and a desire uh, to show humility and admit something and someone greater. And he issues a proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles in verse 7, it says, Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Now notice what he says in verse 9. Who knows? They don't know yet. God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Here's the thing. Here's the amazing thing about the Ninevites. They exhibit faith. Jonah has not given them one promise that says, if you follow God, then everything will be okay. In fact, Jonah doesn't even really know what God is going to do because in chapter 4, he goes out on the east side of the city to watch and see what was going to happen to the city on that, on that time when the 40 days were up. And so we have this idea that there's this climax that is building. And yet the Ninevites by faith say, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what God will plan to do. But we're going to get right with God. We're going to do what God has called for us to do. They experience faith. They uh, were producing faith uh, in their lives. God was allowing them to experience uh, the ability to look and see themselves as God did, first of all, and then to allow themselves to see through the eyes of faith to say, we need to change. Even if God doesn't, we are going to. What an example of faith and obedience. What an example of faith and obedience to a reluctant prophet and to the nation of Israel, that the sworn enemies of Israel and enemies of God would look to God would hear God's message, on the first day would take God's message to heart, would change their ways, and by faith, knowing there's no promise of a good fortune ahead, that they would bow the knee to God. And yet here's Israel, and here's Jonah, who have been given promise after promise, being the covenant people of God, and what do they do? They wander away. They say, Lord, we don't want to listen to your word. We want to do the things that the other people are doing. And so here is this awesome example of God's grace and the heart of God moving through sinners like the Ninevites. They obey, and by faith they do what God required of them before they were even told what to do. This is, this is an amazing thing. Well, what are we to take away from this this morning? A couple things. Number one, you're of one of two people. Either you are Jonah, who needs to be shown that God is a God of grace, while he continues to articulate a message of judgment. That God is, is calling all people to repentance. 
And you, like Jonah, have been given that message. And we're to be like Jonah. We're not to be Jonah 1 where we sit there and we say, No, God, I don't want to do that. It's too costly. That, that may cause me some pain and suffering. But to be like Jonah, who in the second time obeys the word of the Lord, heads out to his Nineveh, and on the first day begins to proclaim to the Ninevites their need for change. We need Jonahs in this church. We need Jonahs who go and cry out and proclaim to people that there is something for them to acknowledge, and that is their sin. That there's something that they need to believe in, and that is Jesus Christ, their Savior. And that there is a cause to consider. And that is that if you're going to follow Jesus, it isn't just to take care of the wrath that is coming, but it is a desire to live in light of the grace and the mercy that was shown you. And that will mean a lifetime of following God. Are you articulating that to people? Well, maybe you're not a Jonah today. Maybe you find yourself as a Ninevite, one who's never heard the message before, one who finds themselves not only wandering from God, but living lives of wickedness. The Bible says that, that we find ourselves as a result of this wickedness on a one-way ticket to hell. But just like the Ninevites, God proclaims a message through a person, and that message gives them the opportunity to change. And so today you're not Jonah, the one who needs to be proclaiming. You're the one who needs to be receiving. And so today is the time where you receive, where you accept Christ as your Savior. You believe in Him. You acknowledge your sin and the death penalty that it brings. And you ask Christ into your life that He may be the one who saves you and He becomes the Lord of your life. Maybe you need to do that today. No matter how many days you've been in church, maybe for the first time you recognize that you face a death sentence that only God can overturn. It's time to change. It's time to turn to God and do as the Ninevites did. Well, there's a couple of things I, I want to mention here uh, before we close this thing. There are four things I want us to remember as Jonas. For the majority of us, I believe we find ourselves as a Jonah... And we say, you know what, Tim? I understand. Last week, we, I got a ton of cards and uh, calls and uh, people came up to me and said, I was fired up after your message last week. That was an amazing message. And, and I've even started to do some things uh, to change uh, my own experiences within my city and, and reaching out to people. But I had one person come up and say, what can one person do? to change the world. Really, Tim, I know you said Jonah could do it, but Jonah was a lot better than I was. And I want you to experience something here in the text that we see throughout this story. There is the greatest revival that takes place amidst four hindrances to this story. I want you to write these down. God produces a revival in Nineveh despite an unruly group of people. It's not on the screen. Just write this down. An unruly group of people. This reminds us that no matter how bad someone is, they are never too far for God's grace. Never too far. And so if you have a child that's running away from God, if you have a co-worker that's hell-bent on living for himself instead of God, they're never too far to be involved in God's grace and mercy. God would send a prophet hundreds of miles to a city that had never heard uh, that we know of the gospel of God and his love and compassion and even his impending judgment. And yet God sends somebody because they're never too far for grace. The next thing is, is that we see an unfit prophet. 
You say, but Tim, I'm, I'm not that smart. Tim, I'm not that articulate. Tim, I, I, you don't know the sins I have. Well, Jonah had every one of those issues. And God still uses the most unfit individual to produce one of the greatest revivals known to man. If God can use a stubborn missionary like Jonah, then he can use us. Number three, God can even revive people with an unfinished message. I want you to understand something, and this creates some dilemmas because we really have to ask the question, uh, do we know without a shadow of a doubt that the Ninevites believed and that their belief produced the opportunity to experience eternal life? We don't know. And the reason why is that there is an unfinished message. There is nothing about repentance in, uh, in uh, Jonah's message. There's no response that's asked. In fact, the idea here is that this is the impending judgment. I was talking with Ray, and uh, Ray brought up a, a great point that I had never thought about before. And I get a sense of the sense of humor of God in this a bit. Jonah is given a message, speaking of the impending destruction of Nineveh, that never happens. So Nineveh, I'm sorry, Jonah gives a message that is in essence false if you really think about it. Because Jonah thinks, hey, God's going to overturn this city, it's going to take place, and it never does. And yet God uses this message to change a city. You see, we get this idea that there's a formula of how we share the gospel. There's this formula on how we're to bring people to Christ. And yes, there are important components to the gospel. We don't want to diminish that. But I love what uh, the blind man said to the Pharisees when he was healed. And they asked all these questions about Jesus. Tell us about this. Tell us about that. And he says, let me, let's just get down to brass tacks here. I was blind, but now I see. And if we will get down to understanding what the gospel is, and that at the very essence, we were sinners, and now we're saved, God will take care of the rest. If we're just humble enough to go out and articulate the message and be passionate about it and speak to people of the, old, the, the change that's happened in our own lives... God will take care of the rest. You need to understand something. The gospel uh, is not contingent on you. Another person's salvation is not contingent on you. It is God's salvation. It's not yours. As if you've got this quota that you can hand out tickets uh, for individual. Oh, here's your, here's your ticket. No. God has to work in the heart of the individual. Jesus even said in John chapter 3, regeneration is like the spirit of God. It's like the wind. And we don't see it. But we see its effects. God is producing the change in the people's lives, not the way we proclaim the message. And one final thing that I see as well is that there was an unavailable temple. And you say, what do you mean by that? The Ninevites believed God, and there was no place for them to worship, to give sacrifices, anything. And so this reminds us of one very important thing, that revival has very little to do with religion and ritual, but has everything to do with the reviving of a heart. We see that in the life of uh, uh, the sailors in chapter 1. They're on a boat, and yet they give oaths to God, they vow to God, and they're changed. And yet there's nowhere for them, no church, no temple, no priest, no nothing. That revival can take place and it involves only two people, God and the individual. 
And God is going to work in his ways and he may bring other people into the lives, but it does not mean that you have to ascribe to religion to experience this incredible revival, this change of heart. Next week, what we're going to be looking at is looking at the response of these Ninevites, an amazing response and how we also can respond that way even as believers. But let's close our time with prayer. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we've given the, been given the charge in two ways today. Charge number one, Father, that your word has declared to us is the charge that we need to be like Jonah. To go to a city of sinners and proclaim the message. And Lord, what I'm noticing more and more through this incredible book is that your message isn't something that will be easy for people to hear. Lord, even now, right now, as I know that in a matter of time, uh, this, this group will be uh, probably equally filled with unbelievers as believers. And there's a pause in my heart because what might people think? What might they say? After I preach a message, they may call me judgmental. After preaching a message, they may call me narrow-minded. They may say that I'm off my rocker. And Lord, that brings pause to my heart. I'm sure no doubt it did to Jonah. And it does to so many in this place. But Lord, just as Jonah did that second time, we must respond in obedience to you and proclaim your message. And not worry about the procedure as much as, Lord, just going and being obedient to it and articulating the message that you've given us. You've articulated what the gospel is. Let us know it and let us proclaim it. So, Lord, give us the spirit of Jonah, the spirit of obedience to do that amidst incredible circumstances. But, Lord, also for those who find themselves just as the Ninevites did in their wickedness and sin, just as we all were at one time, Lord, I pray that you would open the hearts of those in this place, that they, just as the Ninevites, would hear the message and by faith that they would turn from their ways and follow you. Lord, the story of Nineveh is our story. The story of Jonah is the story of us today. It applies to us so deeply and so profoundly. We ask that it would change us, that it would make us different. Lord, speak to us this week as we continue to uh, work through this passage and understand this passage for what it has to offer. That these Ninevites, these wicked people, by your grace could experience mercy and love. That's the message that you give us. It's a message of hope and it's a message of change. We thank you for it. We can't do it without you. So by God's grace and by your spirit, we ask that you would empower us to do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.